0: Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you, but only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams.
1: During the late 1800s, in a remote, rural village, an evil vampire preyed upon a helpless family, slowly sucking the life out of them, one by one.
2: Afraid that the vampire's evil would spread, the townspeople took matters into their own hands, burning the vampire's heart as it lay helpless in its coffin.
1: If this sounds familiar, it should.
2: This story quickly spread, gripping people's imaginations and establishing the vampire as one of pop culture's most famous monsters. But if you think it's the story of Dracula, you'd be wrong.
1: Dead wrong. This vampire didn't reside in a gloomy castle in the Transylvanian Mountains. It terrorized a small farming community in rural New England.
2: And although you may picture vampires as evil counts
1: or perhaps handsome young men who glitter in the sun.
2: This vampire was a young woman by the name of Mercy Brown.
1: And the biggest difference between Mercy and the vampires who would follow in her wake.
2: She was real. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard.
1: And I'm Claire. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
2: Today, we'll dig into the mysteries behind vampire beliefs and why so many people accused their dead relatives and friends of vampirism throughout the ages. We'll be focusing on the case study of Mercy Brown, a, quote, vampire in New England, to answer the question, Why did people believe in vampires?
1: Was Mercy Brown really a vampire? Or was she the target of irrational fears driven by a disease nobody knew how to cure?
2: In this week's part one, we will delve into Mercy's story and examine how people came to suspect she was a vampire, sucking the life out of her family members.
1: In next week's part two, We'll investigate the possible scientific explanations for Mercy's case, look at some similar cases, and confront the chilling question of whether or not vampires could somehow be real.
2: If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at ParCast.com. Mercy Brown lived during what historians call the New England Vampire Panic, which lasted from about 1784 until 1893 when Mercy Brown became the last recorded case of suspected vampirism in the area.
2: During this period, there were people in rural New England who believed evil spirits were sucking the life out of their loved ones from the grave.
1: Unlike the modern concept of vampires as monsters, who walk the earth in search of their victims, vampires in New England stayed in the ground It was some sort of spiritual connection to their loved ones that caused them to suck the strength out of their living relatives from the grave. This is an important distinction for this story. No one thought Mercy Brown's body had left her grave, but they believed her spirit had remained on earth and was feeding on her brother, which was slowly killing him. That said, let's start from the beginning.
2: Mercy Lena Brown was born on August 2nd, 1872, in Exeter, Rhode Island.
1: Mercy was called Lena by her family, lived with her parents George and Mary Eliza, and her two older siblings, Mary Olive and Edwin, on a modest homestead on the eastern edge of town.
2: Life in Exeter was tough. Rural communities in New England had seen their populations sharply reduced From casualties during the Civil War and the deaths of many of the young men who died during the conflict made it difficult for populations to recover. Many of the young people that did remain were lured away to more fertile lands by the new railroads that led to richer lands to the west.
1: It was a harsh inhospitable place to live and neighbors had to rely on each other in order to survive.
2: By all accounts, the Brown family fit the mold of typical Protestant New Englanders, hard-working, self-sufficient, and determined. George Brown was active in the town's social life and was a member of the Exeter Grange, a sort of social club.
1: The Brown children became integral parts of the community as well. Mary Olive worked as a dressmaker, and Edwin was employed at the local general store.
2: It was a difficult life, but they had each other and the support of the community. But tragedy struck the Brown family in 1883 when Mercy's mother, Mary Eliza, fell ill. What at first seemed like an innocuous cough soon became something much more severe.
1: Mary Eliza developed a high fever and her coughing soon became riddled with blood. Her body began to visibly waste away And before anyone could figure out what was wrong with her, she died.
2: Mercy was only 10 years old when her mother died from this mysterious, wasting illness. Doctors had widely varying theories for what caused it. A popular theory at the time was that this disease was caused by degenerate behavior. As one doctor of the time wrote, the disease, quote, "...appears to be built up with equal certainty by impure air," Drunkenness and want among the poor, and by dissipation and enervating luxuries among the rich.
1: If this was the case, how could it infect a morally upright, hardworking woman such as Mary Eliza Brown?
2: Degenerate behavior wasn't the only suspected cause. Other doctors claimed the illness was caused by living in cold, damp places.
1: That definitely sounds more likely, considering New England's climate during the winter.
2: Saying it gets cold would be an understatement. But both of these theories are examples of doctors drawing conclusions based on the environments of people who contracted the disease.
1: The range of potential treatments was just as scattered as the theories of what caused it. Suggested treatments included bleeding, blistering, climatology, diet, drug regimens, exercise, leaching, open-air treatment, open health resorts, opium, poultices, purgatives, emetics, rest cure, sanatoriums, and voyages for health.
2: In truth, nobody knew what caused it, and nobody knew how to treat it. And only seven months after Mary Eliza's death in 1883, Mercy's older sister, Mary Olive, also succumbed from the same illness at the age of 20.
1: Her obituary gave a glimpse of what it would be like to suffer from the disease. Quote, The last few hours she lived was of great suffering, yet her faith was firm, and she was ready for the change. End quote.
2: Although Mary Olive and Mary Eliza's deaths were great tragedies, death was a fact of life for New Englanders at the time, and George Brown still had a family to take care of. Mercy and Edwin grew up, the circle of life went on, and George's son Edwin married a local girl named Hortense Himes on November 9,
1: 1888. However, just as the Brown family was writing itself, disease struck once again. This time, it was Edwin who fell sick. Sometime around 1890, Edwin began to develop a worrisome cough.
2: This disease didn't only afflict the frail or weak, Edwin was a healthy 24-year-old who was described as a big, husky young man. He managed to fight the disease for a while, but eventually, Edwin began to falter.
1: George harbored belief that his son could recover. He sent Edwin and Edwin's wife to Colorado Springs, where he hoped the mountain air would restore his health.
2: Although Edwin had departed, his disease had not. Three months after he left for Colorado, Mercy Brown got sick. She seemed to have the same mysterious wasting disease as her mother, sister, and brother. For a year, Mercy's condition only worsened. She passed away on January 17, 1892, at the age of 19. Mercy was declared dead and then buried in a local cemetery. Her father George was left to mourn alone.
1: Making matters worse, Edwin wasn't showing any signs of improvement in Colorado. He and his wife returned to Exeter by train on February 23, 1892.
2: At this point, it was clear that Edwin was going to die, which meant he had to come home. It was social tradition in New England for someone's friends and loved ones to keep watch over them on their deathbed.
1: For Edwin, the thought of dying far from home could have been more frightening than the thought of death itself, which explains why he would have made the difficult journey in such poor health.
2: However, the Browns' neighbors proved to be more than just a comforting presence for Edwin as he lay on his deathbed.
1: They knew George was terrified of losing his last remaining child and they believed they could help. But their proposed cure wasn't a holistic remedy, such as leaching or fresh mountain air. It would require for George to agree to a stomach-churning ceremony and to confront the possibility that a deadly supernatural being was preying on his family.
2: George Brown's neighbors told him it might not be illness that was killing his family.
1: It might be a vampire.
0: We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries.
2: George Brown couldn't believe what he was hearing. The thought of a vampire preying on his family was too far-fetched to believe, but his neighbors persisted.
1: They tried to convince George that one of the brown women who had died, Mary Eliza, Mary Olive, or Mercy, had become a vampire and was secretly sucking the life out of Edwin.
2: This was not some old wives' tale or some superstitious belief. There was concrete proof that vampires might be the cause behind the Browns' mysterious illness.
1: William Rose, a member of the Exeter Town Council, stepped forward. He revealed that his daughter had died in 1872. When his other family members began to show symptoms of the wasting disease, he began to suspect his deceased daughter had become a vampire. Once he conducted the ceremony to stop her— Rose's family was cured.
2: Rose's story wasn't some one-off case, either. His wife's great-grandfather had also successfully conducted a special ceremony in 1799, when he suspected that one of his daughters had become a vampire.
1: As evidenced by William Rose's stories of vampire cases taking place almost 80 years apart, There was a long-standing belief of vampiric spirits in rural New England.
2: The belief in vampires probably came to the Americas in the 1770s, when German doctors came to treat Hessian soldiers during the Revolutionary War, although many different cultures could have brought this belief with them when they immigrated to the Americas.
1: Throughout history, Civilizations from all over the globe have developed vampire or vampire like mythology.
2: Pottery shards from ancient Persian cultures depict supernatural creatures attempting to drink the blood of men, and the mythologies of other ancient cultures, such as the Babylonians and the Greeks, also contain precursors to the conception of the modern vampire.
1: Civilizations across the globe developed vampire or vampire-like mythology. In China, the shi are evil spirits that attack people and drain their life energy. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead includes the blood-drinking, wrathful deities.
2: Modern imagery of vampires tend to portray them as men, but many cultures have tales of female vampires. India has the Rakshasa, Scotland the Glastig, Ireland the She and France has La Dame Blanche.
1: The term vampire is thought to have originated somewhere in Eastern Europe, sometime in the 10th century, most likely from the Polish Upior, Belarusian Upir, Russian Ukrainian Upir, or Bulgarian Vapir. Others believe it came from ancient Hebrew, or the Turkish word Uber meaning which.
2: Eventually, the Germans derived it to the word vampire, which became the French vampire, and the English vampire. Curiously, the English version first appeared in a 16th century Austrian police report about an investigation into vampire claims by local peasants. Tales of vampires would become widespread throughout the 17th and 18th centuries when they found their way to the Americas.
1: These stories of undead creatures who sucked the strength out of the living took firm hold in the farming communities of New England, which had proven to be susceptible to superstition during the Salem witch trials in the late 1600s.
2: The first recorded reference to a vampire scare in the Americas was published in the June 1784 edition of the Connecticut Current and Weekly Intelligencer, when Councilman Moses Holmes wrote a letter warning of a quack doctor who was advising families to dig up and burn dead relatives who had died from an illness with the same symptoms that plagued the Brown family in the 1880s. During the New England vampire scares of the late 1700s and throughout the 1800s, the only way to tell if someone was a vampire was to conduct a ceremony that required a suspected vampire's body to be exhumed.
1: Over 80 exhumations of suspected vampires were recorded in New England between 1784 and 1892. And it is believed that there are many, many more that went unrecorded.
2: But why vampires and not some other type of supernatural creature?
1: To put it plainly, vampires passed the eye test. The physical appearance of people suffering from this disease perfectly mirrored the supposed signs of being preyed upon by a vampire.
2: New Englanders believed the vampiric spirits would drain their loved ones of their lives by sitting on their chests in the middle of the night, which is when people with the disease tended to suffer the most often complaining of a heavy feeling on their chest, as if someone were sitting on it.
1: As the disease worsens, ulcers and cavities develop in the lungs, creating a visibly noticeable sunken chest. To an observer who has no idea what is causing the disease, it's understandable how they could interpret this as the work of a spirit leeching the strength out of their loved one.
2: It also helped that vampire rituals had a proven track record of success, as evidenced by William Rose's stories. After sharing his stories about how he stopped the vampires in his family, Rose told George Brown that the only way to know if his wife or daughters had become vampires was to dig up their bodies and remove their hearts. If the body was sufficiently decomposed, then there was no danger. But if the hearts still contained blood, then it was a sign she was a vampire.
1: This was an incredibly difficult choice for George to make. At first, he resisted. How could he stand to allow for the bodies of his family members to be desecrated in such a barbaric fashion?
2: On the other hand, if he didn't allow for the exhumation to take place and Edwin died... Could he live with himself, knowing that he hadn't done everything he could to save his son?
1: George's friend, Dr. Harold Metcalf, who was the medical examiner of North Kingston and Exeter, argued against the ceremony. Although he didn't yet know the true cause of the wasting disease, Dr. Metcalfe felt the possibility that any of the deceased brown women were vampires was absurd.
2: But Edwin was growing weaker by the hour, and George was running out of time. He gave his neighbors permission to conduct the ceremony.
1: George sent an acquaintance to inform Dr. Metcalf of his decision to proceed with the exhumations. He asked the doctor to attend the ceremonies and to perform an autopsy of the bodies of Mary Olive, Mary Eliza, and Mercy. George hoped this would put his mind at ease.
2: By all accounts, George Brown didn't even believe that Mercy was a vampire. A letter in the local newspaper describing the exhumation reported that, quote, the husband and father of the deceased ones has, from the first, disclaimed any faith at all in the vampire theory, end quote.
1: But if George Brown didn't believe in vampires, Why would he agree to go through the whole ceremony?
2: It's very likely that George was desperate by that point. Nothing else had worked, so why not try this?
1: That's true. He didn't have much to lose.
2: There was also a performative aspect to this ceremony. Just because George didn't believe his daughter was a vampire doesn't mean his neighbors didn't.
1: And with the danger this disease posed, they wouldn't want to risk their families contracting it.
2: By the time Mercy died in 1892, Exeter's population was just 961 people, down from its peak of more than 2,500 in 1820. There were only 17 people per square mile, and one-fifth of Exeter's farms were abandoned.
1: Due to Exeter's low population, if the disease plaguing the Brown family spread, it could easily wipe out the entire town. As a prominent member of the community, George might have also felt a responsibility to do everything he could to ensure the town's safety.
2: With so little known about this disease, digging up suspected vampires was a better safe than sorry approach.
1: But how did the vampire explanation become so widespread? If these rural communities were so isolated, why would this become the default spiritual cure?
2: The way information was disseminated at the time was extremely conducive to folk remedies and word of mouth. The most common place to exchange news in rural New England was at roadside taverns, which served as a sort of media center.
1: The law mandated for taverns to be located every five miles along main roads. For people traveling during the harsh New England winters, It was important to know there would be reliable places for them to seek shelter from the cold.
2: Newspapers and bulletins would often be placed at taverns. Many of these had articles and testimonies of successful vampire exhumations that saved their families from the wasting illness. And people would trade stories about places where they had been and share accounts of witnessing exhumations.
1: With the oral aspect of these news exchanges, stories could also easily be warped elaborated or embellished it was like a giant game of telephone with the story changing as it went from person to person in addition to roadside taverns serving as a hub for the exchange of information country stores also served as a central gathering place for people to trade stories
2: country stores sold home remedies for illnesses With little proper medical advice available to them, people would be eager to hear about anything that worked.
1: Both taverns and country stores had two items that were conducive for the spreading of information and its distortion, fireplaces and alcohol.
2: This doesn't mean people got drunk and started believing in vampires, but more that these environments were favorable to the sharing and receiving of information.
1: And despite New England's reputation as a highly religious, puritanical society, people were very receptive to cures that might be viewed as pagan in nature.
2: At the time of the Mercy Brown case, only 10 to 15 percent of the people in rural New England actually belonged to a church.
1: Not to say people weren't religious, but their form of worship tended to be religious hybrids that also incorporated pagan elements, such as astrology, divination, seeing stones, and dowsing.
2: Rhode Island, where Mercy Brown's town of Exeter was located, was particularly liberal in this respect. Puritan minister Cotton Mather, who participated in the Salem witch trials, called Rhode Island the Sewer of New England.
1: Rhode Islanders took the religious freedom it had been founded upon quite seriously. Town squares in Rhode Island usually featured churches from several different denominations.
2: This liberal mindset meant the people of Rhode Island were more willing to try outside-of-the-box methods to stop diseases such as the one affecting the Brown family. At the time, people whose loved ones were suffering from it could only work off the hope that they might find a cure. And if a treatment was rumored to actually work, There was nothing to lose by trying it.
1: Whether or not it worked, digging up his wife and daughters would have seemed to be George Brown's only remaining option. He had tried to supply Edwin with more modern cures, and nothing had worked. It was time to take action.
2: In the early hours of March 17, 1892, a group of men dug up the bodies, with Dr. Metcalf and a Providence Journal correspondent also in attendance. George elected not to come.
1: They exhumed George's wife, Mary Eliza, first. She was little more than a skeleton and therefore couldn't be a vampire.
2: Mary Olive was next. She, too, showed natural decomposition for someone who had been dead for over ten years and was ruled out as Edwin's tormentor.
1: Mercy was last. Although she had only been dead for about two months, her body should still show enough signs of decomposition to know whether or not she was a vampire.
2: When they opened her coffin, the men were shocked. (gasps) To them, mercy seemed to not be decomposing. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. When Dr. Metcalf and Mercy's neighbors exhumed her body, which had been buried for a couple of months, Mercy Brown looked like the picture of health. The Providence Journal's correspondent writing that, quote, the body was in a fairly well-preserved state, end
1: quote. Dr. Metcalf insisted Mercy's state was due to the cold winter weather preserving her body, but the rest were unconvinced. Why was there blood in her mouth?
2: The doctor had no answer. Mercy's heart was removed and decomposed blood was found in it. Dr. Metcalf once again tried to be the voice of reason, insisting that this was normal considering the conditions. But George's neighbors took it as a sure sign that she was indeed a vampire.
1: At the time, the presence of liquid blood even if it was in a decomposed state, was viewed as unnatural.
2: The heart was considered to be the organ that governed human life, and the blood within it contained a person's soul or spirit. This powerful essence was craved by the undead, and the presence of blood inside Mercy's heart could only mean that she was a vampire.
1: Now that Mercy had been identified as a vampire, there was one more step to the ritual. Her heart and liver had to be burnt, and her sick brother Edwin had to consume the ashes.
2: There have been many different methods for how to stop a vampire throughout history, such as driving a stake through its heart or turning it over in the grave so it couldn't escape. But in the cases of New England vampires, more drastic measures were required In 1793, hundreds of people watched a suspected vampire's heart get burned on a blacksmith's forge. And in 1830, a heart was burned at the Town Green in Woodstock, Vermont.
1: One of these ceremonies attracted the attention of famous writer Henry David Thoreau, who wrote about it in his journal in September 1859. Quote, the savage in man is never quite eradicated. I have just read of a family in Vermont who, several of its members having died, just burned the lungs and heart and liver of the last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it." Utilizing a less violent method might stop a vampire, but it wouldn't restore the health of the people it had afflicted. Burning vital organs such as the heart or liver and having whoever the vampire was afflicting consume the ashes was akin to returning his or her lost strength. Another popular cure was to burn the suspected vampire's entire body and have the afflicted inhale the smoke.
2: Dr. Metcalf was vehemently against desecrating Mercy's body in such a manner. But George's neighbors stood firm. George knew what the ceremony entailed, and had agreed to it.
1: Despite Dr. Metcalf's objections, Mercy's heart and liver were burned, and George's neighbors brought him the ashes. I
2: can't imagine the anguish George was going through having to feed his daughter's ashes to his son.
1: But by now, he had no other choice. This disease had taken everyone George loved away from him, and he was determined to not let it take his last remaining child he took the ashes from his neighbors and mixed them with water for Edwin to drink.
2: Did Edwin know that he was drinking his sister's ashes?
1: It's not clear. It's possible George didn't tell Edwin what the tonic was, or Edwin might have been so delirious that he didn't know what he was drinking. It's also possible that he was ready to try anything to save his life.
2: Regardless of what Edwin knew or didn't know, He drank the tonic. The only thing left to do now was wait.
1: Edwin's health began to improve. It seemed as though George's neighbors had been right about Mercy and that Edwin might make a full recovery.
2: For a few months, the Browns had hope. But with that hope came the question, had Mercy really become a vampire? Was she feeding off of Edwin? Did this strange cure work? However, Edwin's brief resurgence after the ritual was merely an illusion. He died less than two months after drinking his sister's ashes on May 3, 1892. The Mercy Brown case is the last recorded exhumation of a suspected vampire. As technology improved and information became more readily available, the region's superstitious practices began to fade away. But as the belief in vampires in New England dwindled, society's obsession with these supernatural beings began to grow, thanks in large part to Mercy Brown.
1: Although writers such as Henry David Thoreau had written about previous vampire exhumations, these were second-hand stories. The journalist from the Providence Journal, who was present at Mercy's exhumation, was able to provide a bone-chilling eyewitness account that shocked and delighted its readers.
2: The article was also the first time someone had directly linked vampires to the exhumation ceremonies.
1: It's also important to note that New Englanders didn't actually refer to the spirits they believed were draining the life out of their loved ones as vampires, referring to them only as spirits.
2: It wasn't until the writer from the Providence Journal witnessed one of these ceremonies that the two were linked together.
1: Although nobody in Exeter was calling Mercy a vampire, the writer thought she fit the bill, citing the Century Dictionary's definition of a vampire, quote, a kind of spectral being or ghost still possessing a human body, which, according to a superstition among the Slavic, and other races of the Lower Danube, leaves the grave during the night and maintains a semblance of life by sucking the warm blood of men and women while they are asleep, quote.
2: This doesn't perfectly apply to the Mercy Brown case and other instances of New England vampires. There's no evidence to suggest they believe the dead were actually leaving their graves at night to suck the life out of their loved ones.
1: But like many things, once it was printed, the connection stuck, and people became very interested in Mercy Brown.
2: After reading the article about her in the Providence Journal, well-known anthropologist George Stetson traveled to Rhode Island to investigate the matter and published his findings in the respected American Anthropologist Journal.
1: This article spread across the world, and it seemed like everyone had an explanation for New England's vampire panic.
2: Some blamed the neurotic modern novel on influencing the New Englanders' minds. Others believed the local farmers were simply pulling Stetson's leg as part of a prank on big city intellectuals.
1: A writer from the Boston Daily Globe went as far as to suggest that, quote, Perhaps the frequent intermarriage of families in these backcountry districts may partially account for some of their characteristics, end quote.
2: It seemed like everyone had something to say about New England's vampires, and soon enough, Mercy Brown made her way into pop culture.
1: An 1896 article on Mercy Brown in the New York World was found in the papers of a London stage manager whose theater company was touring the United States at the time.
2: His name? Brahm Stoker. And upon returning home in 1897, he would publish the novel Dracula, which set the wheel for the vampire craze in motion.
1: Some argue that there wasn't enough time for the news accounts of Mercy Brown to find their way into Stoker's book. But the character of Lucy is too similar to Mercy Brown for it to be a coincidence.
2: Aside from her name being an amalgamation of the names Lena and Mercy, Lucy is a frail, sunken-cheeked teenager who is later exhumed in one of the book's most famous scenes.
1: Although there were novels previously written about vampires, such as 1819's The Vampire, and 1872's Carmilla, it was Dracula that caused vampires' popularity to skyrocket.
2: As vampires transformed from eerie Transylvanian counts to romantic figures and even superheroes, the story of Mercy Brown, the last vampire of New England, faded from public memory.
1: As pop culture embraced fictional figures such as Count Dracula, Nosferatu, and Edward Cullen, people forgot about the story of Mercy Brown, a very real vampire.
2: But she wasn't really a vampire, was she? Even if vampires were real and causing this mysterious illness, burning her heart wasn't able to save Mercy's brother.
1: Maybe not. But what if Edwin was too far gone to save? After all, he had returned from Colorado in grave condition.
2: That's true. And one member of the Brown family never did get sick, George. He lived until 1922, when he died from old age.
1: Was he simply immune to the disease? Or was he able to stop the evil spirit that had invaded Mercy's body before it started to suck the life out of him, too? Next week, we'll take a deep dive into the possible explanations behind the Mercy Brown case. What was the cause of the blood in her heart? And why did she look healthier in death than she ever had in life?
2: Were the vampires of New England mere superstition, created by people grasping at straws to explain the rampant death around them? Or were they all too real, hiding beneath the ground as they preyed upon helpless victims? Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
1: A new episode comes out every Thursday. And next week, we'll continue our investigation of the Mercy Brown case.
2: And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rosner.